Jordan coming to John. And perhaps we would expect the text to say, coming to be John, to bap- coming to John to baptize him. So Jesus is going to come, and remember, he's the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit, the one who brings the greater baptism. So when he shows up in his ministry of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then shouldn't the first thing he does is essentially show up and say, John, you're done baptizing. It's my turn now. Step aside. But I'm the one who comes and brings the greater baptism. I'm the more, I'm the more mighty one, so now it's my turn. But he doesn't. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 13 through 17, Matthew chapter 3. So please stand with me and we'll read from the Word of God. It's We've moved through the herald and his message and his rebuke, and now we are coming to the introduction of the king himself. He is about to come on the scene. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Please be seated. I have two questions for you to consider this morning, and these two questions essentially determine the course of your life. Question number one is, who do you desire to please? And question number two is, who do you desire to be loved by? These two, two, the answer to these two questions will essentially determine how you live your life. And we are a, a people that desire to be loved, and we, desired for, we desire for people to be delighted in us. But what we often don't understand is that our greatest need is to be loved and delighted in by God the Father primarily. He should be our supreme lover, and he should be the one whom we are seeking to please above all things. And another thing that we do not understand about those questions is that this can only happen through humble acceptance of the Son. The only way we can be loved by God, and the only way we will ever be delighted in by God, is if we have accepted the Son of His delight, the Son of His love. So what we will see this morning is that Jesus is the Spirit-anointed, delightful, beloved Son of God, who enters into His ministry through the humility of baptism. Again, Jesus is the Spirit-anointed, delightful, beloved Son of God who enters into His ministry through the humility of baptism. Now, in our text in chapter 3, we've already been through, we start in in chapter 1 with the lineage of the King. He is the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the birth of the King, that He was virgin-born, that He was born to Mary, that He was Emmanuel, God with us, that He was born in Bethlehem, all of those things predicted by the prophets. 
we discussed the worship of the king. That while the, the, the named king of the Jews at that time, Herod, wanted to kill him, and the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees and Sadducees, ignored him, saying, he's born in Bethlehem, but they didn't even bother to go to worship. He was worshipped instead by formerly pagan mystics from the east who came and brought gifts and bent their knee to worship the true king of kings and lord of lords. And then we saw the flight of the king that he fled from Bethlehem as Herod killed all of the babies under two years old. He fled to Egypt, and then later, even as he returns from Egypt, he doesn't go back to Bethlehem because there is a son of Herod ruling there who still desires, who would still have been antagonistic towards him. So he ends up in Nazareth, and that's where we left him at the end of chapter 2. That It says in verse 23, And he came and lived in the city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene, a backwater. And no one from nowhere, essentially, is how that goes. That's the Son of God. Born in humble circumstances, living, we left him in chapter 2, in humble circumstances, in a town that no one would have cared about, and in a town that was not the predicted place that the Messiah was to be born, although predicted that he would live there. And then we spent the last several weeks working through the herald of the king. John the Baptist comes, and he comes preaching the message of repentance, that we are to repent of our sin, to turn from them, to desire to trust in Christ. And then the rebuke of the herald. That is, those who came without confessing their sins, he rebukes them, and he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You're coming for the wrong reasons, remember, he said to the Sadducees and to the Pharisees. You're coming, you're already self-righteous. You don't believe you need forgiveness because you think you're righteous. You're coming believing that you're already in the kingdom because of your ethnic heritage, and you are coming believing that the judgment will not fall upon you, even though the axe is laid at the tree, at the foot of the tree, and even though the, his winnowing fork is in his hand, you believe that you will not receive that. And then last week, we talked about the reality of eternal judgment. The judgment is not simply being burned up in a moment. It is not being purified through the fires of hell or whatever it might be, and then emerging eventually into heaven. It is unquenchable fire. That is, those raised to eternal death, those who have not put faith and trust in Christ, without exception, in their renewed bodies, they will spend eternity suffering Right? conscious torment, both mental and physical, away from the presence of God and away from the glory of his power. This is the reality for everyone who does not repent and believe. Well, with that in the backdrop, with that being the message of the herald, now we turn to the moment that we've all been waiting for. The king is about to be revealed. Well, how will he come? Surely this will be the grandest of entrances. Surely the whole world will turn to watch as the king comes to claim his kingdom. And yet what do we see in verse 13? Then Jesus arrived from Galilee, that nowhere place, at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. John is baptizing for repentance. Here you have the King of kings and Lord of lords coming to be baptized with the baptism of John and the confession of sin, or at least that's what John's baptism was for. This, this is amazing to us. It is stunning to us. And we see that he, that he again comes in a way that we would never expect. He humbly submits himself to baptism by the hands of the one who was unworthy to unlatch his sandals. What humility. What a willingness to come to, and, and to stoop low that we might be saved. So let's look at that in detail as best we can. First, the commissioning. This is the commissioning of the king that the king is baptized. Here's his entrance. Here's where the king begins the work of the ministry. And the first thing that he does in entering into public ministry is that he comes of all things baptism. It says then. That's the next event in the action. It is probably at the height of John's ministry. That's while he is baptizing. It is while essentially he is rebuking the Pharisees and Sadducees. They are coming and he's refusing them. We know that John was about six months older than Jesus. That Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age. That's according to Luke 3.23. 
So if John has been preaching, he started preaching about that same age, then he's probably been ministering about six months when Jesus comes for baptism. And he arrives from Galilee. We know in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, that he wasn't just in, in anywhere in Galilee. He was, in fact, still in Nazareth. In Mark 1, verse 9, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. So it's not as though Jesus had begun kind of an initial book signing tour or he, the, the preparatory work where he was going to uh, you'd barnstorm around the area of Galilee. He was still in Nazareth. He was ministering there. All right. He was uh, apparently, it seems, nothing unusual as far as the fact that he had not started his ministry. In fact, the only snapshot we have is when he's 12 years old. He goes up to Jerusalem from Nazareth, where his parents were. But then he comes back and it says he grew, continued to grow in stature and in favor with God and men. And he continued in subjection to his parents. Those are the last things that we heard about. And now he bursts on the scene from Nazareth, the city in which he grew up, and most likely working there, again, ministering to his family, and he comes to begin his ministry by being baptized. So the place of baptism is at the Jordan. That's probably 70 miles, about 70 miles from Nazareth, the southern portion of the Jordan above the Dead Sea. And the person that he comes to for baptism, that's the person for baptism, is John the Baptist. And this, again, it astounds us just as it astounded John. He says he arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John. And perhaps we would expect the text to say, coming to be John, to bap- coming to John to baptize him. So Jesus is going to come, and remember, he's the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit, the one who brings the greater baptism. So when he shows up in his ministry of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then shouldn't the first thing he does is essentially show up and say, John, you're done baptizing. It's my turn now. Step aside. And I'm the one who comes and brings the greater baptism. I'm the more, I'm the more mighty one, so now it's my turn. But he doesn't. He comes to John to be baptized by him. Luke 3.21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, that is, I think, the implication that all were being baptized, many people coming, that Jesus was also baptized, like the common people. an amazing thing, that Jesus would come to John. This appears to be his first official act of ministry, or in effect, his entrance into the ministry. He's been in Nazareth until now. He is awaiting the right moment to respond to the proclamation of the herald, and here it is. He comes to be baptized. Now, not surprising to us, this will be number three on your outline, is the prevention of baptism, because verse 14, it says, John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In fact, the tense of the verb here is like he was continually trying to keep it. It's like, no, wait, no, stop. No, don't get in the water. No, you can't come to be baptized because I need to be baptized by you. What are you doing is essentially what's being said here. Why are you coming? And he actually tried to stop him, to keep him from doing it. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said they couldn't come. Why? Because they weren't confessing their sin. Now, Jesus is not coming confessing his sin either because he is sinless. And it's the exact opposite reason. I'm I'm not worthy to baptize you. I have need, in fact, to be baptized. John recognized that he was sinful, that Jesus was sinless. And I think this is essentially the first proclamation of that we see besides his virgin birth, where now men give attesting to this, where John says, essentially, you don't need the baptism of repentance. You don't need to be baptized by me. It's just the opposite. I'm the sinful one implied here. You are the one without sin. He didn't need to come for repentance. And in fact, when when John says, I need to be baptized by you, it could be that he refers to his own kind of baptism. I need to repent. I'm one that needs this baptism of repentance or possibly even referring to, I need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. I need that baptism. Not, I need to baptize you. And here again, John's humility is recorded. John has just stated that he was not worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. 
and now he's being asked to baptize him. This is unthinkable. He refused to baptize the Pharisees and Sadducees because they were totally unworthy of it. Now he was equally reluctant to baptize Jesus because he, Jesus, was too worthy for it. So John is again in a difficult position. By the way, before we move from this point, it is the universal testimony of those who were around Jesus that he did not sin. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees would accuse him of various things, breaking the law and, and other things, but anyone around Jesus was convicted by their own sinfulness. He is the sinless, perfect Son of God, and the testimony of being around Jesus was much like Simon Peter in Luke 5, 8, after Jesus performs the miracle of they cast the nets on the other side of the boat after they've had, they've had no catch the entire night and the nets are filled with fish. And Simon Peter saw that and he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That's essentially what John is saying. I, I am not worthy to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. I am a sinful man. And this only attests to what is actually true of all men without exception except the only exception being Jesus himself. Only one man ever born of woman who is without sin. The Bible is clear. Romans 3.23, most of you have known this since you were little. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Only one man who never fell short of the glory of God. Because that is what it is to sin. To not have the very glory of God. To not be able to do everything to God's glory and to be able to do everything in a manner that is fully worthy of God's glory. Think of that. No man could possibly ever accomplish this because we are not God. Only one man, the God-man, could ever do this. And this is essentially what John is saying. I have need to be baptized by you. So he comes to John, and John seeks to prevent him. But now we have the purpose of baptism. Right? The purpose of baptism. So he, he tried to prevent him, but John or Jesus says, no, this must be done. And he's going to give the reason. But Jesus answered and said to him, answering, said to him, permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. So Jesus is going to give an explanation. And really the explanation he give, gives seems to take into account John's hesitancy. He says, no, permit it at this time. It, it's a command. saying, John, no, no, you need to let me in the water. <laughs> all right? Answering, he said to him, no, let me in. I, I need to be baptized because this is going to fulfill all righteousness. Really, I think two things implied in that statement. He says it is necessary for us. And that's interesting, both John and he included in that. And it's not necessary for me only to fulfill all righteousness. It is necessary for us. Well, I think most basically bound up in that statement is this. Jesus is saying, I have to obey my father. And my father has commanded me to do this. Jesus always did the will of the father. So saying, look, righteousness, and as is most often used in Matthew, is adherence to the standards and principles of God's character and nature. The principles of his word, the principles of who he is. It is used in other places in scripture for things like the all-sufficient righteousness of Christ granted to us. But here that's not what is being said. It's all righteousness. We've got to do what he says. We need to obey the commands of a holy God. He's righteous, so everything he asks is righteous, so to obey him is righteousness. And that is what he is saying. I must do this. So in the most basic sense, this means that in order for God's perfect plan to be fulfilled, Jesus had to be baptized, but also, when he says, for us to fulfill all righteousness, it was necessary that he be baptized by John. That is part of fulfilling the righteousness that God would have. So it couldn't be anyone that baptized him. He couldn't baptize himself. And some have postulated that he actually did that. He couldn't possibly be baptized by John. So in the more personal accounts where this is given in the Gospels, maybe he just did it himself, which is not 
fulfilling all righteousness. He says, us. Craig Blomberg says, Jesus' somewhat ambiguous reply to simply permit it at this time. That's not ambiguous in what he intended to do, but it is almost like bringing John, I know why you're worried about this. His somewhat ambiguous reply seems to acknowledge the force of John's logic, but nevertheless requests baptism for different reasons. Jesus had not come to confess any sin, again, but to fulfill all righteousness. He has previously fulfilled specific prophecies as well as more general scriptural themes. Now he wishes to obey all the moral demands of God's will. And this was what Jesus looked for. Now, his specific purpose on earth was to come to die to provide salvation. And yet, in the bigger picture, Jesus' primary purpose was what? To do anything and everything that God desired. And he did, in fact, do so. The only one who has ever done so. He did not only in this action, but in everything that he did, he fulfilled all righteousness in the fullest extent. The only one who ever has. Every command of the law. Every intent of the law. Jesus fulfilled it all. John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, when they questioned him, when they're going to go get food, he goes, I have food that you don't know of. With the woman at the one, they go, what food do you have? Did you sneak away and go to McDonald's? That's where he would have gone. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish the work, my very sustenance, the thing that keeps me alive. Oh, that it would be true for us. Oh, that that would be our desire to fulfill all righteousness. We don't do so in the same way that Christ did. We are finite. And yet it is our passion to do the will of our Father because this was His passion as He has given us to do. John 15.10 If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. The unbroken love of the Father for the Son, which will be attested to in just a moment in our passage, was maintained through the obedience of Christ. No obedience, no love. That's the way the Bible puts those two things together. Hebrews 7.26 For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy and innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This is our Lord. And he comes. John acknowledges this. And Jesus essentially acknowledges it as well. He goes, look, I I understand what you're saying. But I'm not coming to say that I'm a sinner. I'm not coming to confess my sin. I'm coming to perform a righteous deed. That's different. right? Active righteousness being performed, not sin being confessed of. But I think there's more here not directly stated in the text, but part of what he is saying when he says, I must fulfill all righteousness, and why he's coming to John to be baptized in this way, that there is a proper identification necessary here. That he is identifying with his people. I think probably two things bound up in that. There is an example for his followers, that they too will be baptized. And there's much about that as we will work our way through Matthew. But I believe that what here we have is Jesus essentially changing baptism from the baptism of John to the baptism of Jesus in the name of Jesus. He enters into John's baptism really to transform it so that it becomes something different in him. But he undergoes it as an example for us to follow. That is mentioned later on in Matthew 28. where It says, go into all the nations and do what? Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he enters into this righteousness for him and as an example for us. But further, there's a deeper identification, I think, that is bound up here. John MacArthur says it this way. Jesus' baptism also represented the willing identification of the sinless Son of God with the sinful people that he came to save. This was the first public act of his ministry and the first step in his redemptive plan that he came to fulfill. He who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. He who was without sin submitted to a baptism for sinners. 
And in this act, the Savior of the world took his place among the sinners of the world without himself being sinful. What humility. He came and partook of the baptism of the sinful people without himself being sinful, that he might fulfill righteousness and identify himself with them, put himself in their place, as it were, without taking, without, without having the, the contamination of their sin, yet always he identifies with them. And we see the, the, in everything that he does, he moves towards the cross to do what? To actually bear their sin. He identifies with them in taking their baptism and he will eventually come and take their sin. But yet, as well without being tainted by it. Never tainted, but always in identification with those that he would save. This is the king. The king comes to say, I am, I am acting in your place. I am not sinful, but I am acting as you to ultimately take your penalty. And I am living your holy life. I am the one who will fulfill all righteousness that you could never fulfill, that that might be given to you. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.